Our sermon text today will be Genesis 15, 1 through 6. And what I'm hoping we will see as we look to that passage of Scripture is, is that though, as, as I mentioned before, we live in a time and in a place that values hard work, that, that really believes in the idea that we can't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, that this sometimes hinders our view of the gospel, it hinders our view of the wonders of God's grace. For we tend to think that whatever blessings we might have received, they must be a result of our goodness, that we have somehow earned those blessings if we've received them. When in reality, the Bible tells us that nothing could be further from the truth, that the blessings that we receive from God are not a matter of something we have earned, but rather are the fruits of another's labor. That of Christ Jesus, who lived a perfectly righteous life for us, and who grants us his righteousness so that we might have fellowship with him. We look at Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6. Listen as I read from the inspired word of God. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is truth. And we pray that now during this time you might have already prepared our hearts to receive your truth that you might be working by the power of your spirit in us through your word that you might bring us more into conformity with Christ Jesus that we might see you more truly as we look to him and that we might be more holy because he is our holiness we ask this all now in Christ Jesus name amen well, growing up, I was a city boy, through and through. People here find this hard to believe when I tell them this, but, but you've got to realize that where I grew up, there, there was just kind of a different culture. You'd think St. Louis and Michigan, both Midwestern cities, it would be fairly similar, and in many ways, certainly it is, but, but in some ways, very different. People don't believe this, but, but I promise you this is true. Growing up, in all my years, even to the point where I moved to Michigan six years ago, I don't believe I ever knew a single person who owned a camper of any kind. That's amazing, isn't it? But it was just a different culture. I, I was a city boy. We just lived in the city. We didn't, we didn't go out to the, 
to, to the, the nether regions out where you go, go up north. We didn't have an up north in St. Louis. I was a city boy. And that's all right. There's nothing wrong with that. I did like to get away from the city on occasion, though. And, and I was blessed that we had a neighbor that we were real good friends with. They had two children. One was a son the same age as my brother, and one was a daughter the same age as my sister. And so our families did a lot of things together. And their parents had a farm in south-central Illinois. And every once in a while, maybe once a year or, or so, their family would take us for a weekend to the family farm. And I enjoyed that. I did. What I enjoyed most of it, of all the things that I experienced, I think was at night. At night when we'd gather around and we'd sit outside a camp by a campfire and as the fire died down, it would get so dark. A darkness that I didn't know from being in the city. For even when it gets dark in the city, it's still not really dark. There's so much light from all the lights around that, that you don't know darkness until you get away from the city and you go out somewhere away where it's really dark. Because, you see, light, the purpose of light is to help you see things. But sometimes, sometimes, light can actually obscure your vision. And that's how it was. You see, I had lived my whole life in the city, and I had never seen a sky full of stars. I thought I had, but I hadn't until I got out away from the city lights. Those lights that are supposed to help me see it actually obscured my vision. And when I got out into the darkness, I could see stars. I could see stars like I had never seen before. A, a thousand times as many stars as I ever even imagined were there. It was an amazing sight to look up into the sky and to see the Milky Way ranging across the sky. Just, just these stars and stars and stars. It's amazing. Light can actually obscure one's vision. Circumstances can be kind of like that too. Uh, circumstances can certainly help us in making decisions. If I look at the stove and I see the stove top has a, a bright orange circle on it, uh, I, I won't lean on that <laughs> because I know it's hot, right? <laughs> and so that circumstance helps me. If I come to a bridge and I see that the wood on the bridge is completely rotting out, I might not go across that bridge. The circumstances help me to see things there. But there are times also where circumstances can cause us to miss things. For we're not always to live on the basis of what we see. God calls us to live by faith. And sometimes that means living in a way that doesn't pay attention to just those things that are before us, but lays claim to the promises that he has made, even though all circumstances seem to be pointing in an opposite direction. Abram is a perfect example of that. Abram, of course, later became Abraham. Abraham, which means father of multitudes, before he was a father of multitudes, he was just Abram, which means exalted father. It's kind of ironic because Abram wasn't a father. He was without child late in life. He wanted more than anything to, to 
live out and experience the blessing of his name. He wanted to be an exalted father. But for all the world, it looked as if this would not occur. And it's in the midst of such longing that God comes to him in a vision and proclaims here in verse 1, Abraham, fear not. Now, if we, we look at this, we, we hear God saying, fear not. The normal question for us to ask is, well, well, what would Abram be fearful of? And I would suggest there's any number of things that he would rightfully uh, have reason to fear. Uh, one would be just the circumstances that he lived in. As we mentioned, circumstances can help us. His circumstances were such that he had been called by God back in Genesis 12. And the Lord had said to him, go, leave your family, leave your household, and go to a place that I will show you. And I will make your, you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And he who dishonors you, I will curse And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It's a wonderful promise, but it's a hard promise. Leave your family, leave your home, be homeless, wander. It's a dangerous life, a dangerous existence. It's a fearful existence, not knowing what will happen next, not knowing where you will be going, not knowing whether or not you are safe in the place that you are. Certainly the circumstances of of homelessness are something that could cause fear. And when he came to Canaan, eventually, we we find in verse 7 of chapter 12, the Lord said to Abram, to your offspring I will give this land. But even so, God had promised him offspring. He had promised him land. But at this point in chapter 15, Abram has neither. He has not seen the fulfillment of either promise, and many years have passed. Surely he's, he's fearful that he will not get to see these promises fulfilled. He lacks land. He lacks offspring. He, an heir would have been an important thing. It's, of course, for us, we understand that. We'd all love to have an heir. We'd all love to have that. But, but it was even more important in his day. For an heir would be the one who would look after him in his own old age, the one who would ensure that he would receive a proper burial, but most importantly would be the one who would receive his inheritance. Now, Abram had many things, many, many material blessings that he would pass on, but more important than these material blessings would be the blessing that he had received from God. No ordinary blessing, but remember the blessing that he, he himself would be a blessing to all the families of the earth, that through his offspring that this would occur. And so he needed an offspring for this to happen. It was not just a selfish desire on his part, but, but really the blessing of the whole world hinged on God's faithfulness to his word. And so perhaps he feared that this would not come to pass. I don't know what your fears are. No doubt you have fears as well. I know I do. Whatever your fears are, and varied, I'm sure they are, I can be sure of this. We have the same God that Abram had. 
that God who promises us that he will love us perfectly, that God who proclaims to us that perfect love drives out all fear. And so because that is our God, we, like Abram, can trust him. We can heed his word. We can be confident that he speaks to us just as he spoke to Abram. But perhaps that's the problem. Perhaps we're we're wearied and worried that we don't have his love. Perhaps that's what Abram's fear was. We, we look here, God comes to him in, in a vision, and, and perhaps he was fearful because he realized the holiness of God. I think that's a doctrine that we take far too lightly in our day. We, we don't consider the holiness of of God, the awesome holiness of God. We think that God must be pleased with us because we're basically decent individuals. We show up for church on Sunday morning. We try to be nice to our neighbors and we don't get too mad at other people and, and we try to help out. And so, so God's probably pretty pleased with us. But if we look to his word, we see that this is not the case. We see in Romans 3 that there is none righteous. No, not one that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We see in 1 John 1 that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And in Ephesians 2, we see that apart from Christ Jesus, that we were dead in our sins and in our trespasses. And that as a result, we are by nature children of wrath. We think that we're by nature children of God's pleasure, but that's not what the Bible tells us. By nature, we are children of wrath, deserving of his judgment. It is because he is holy and we are not. Recently, I went to a conference and I heard a sermon uh, on the passage in Isaiah 6, and it was quite helpful to me. Uh, In Isaiah 6 is a picture of another vision of God. Isaiah has this vision of God in the temple and and he says above him stood the seraphim, that is, that is these, these fiery angels. And he says, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. The idea here is, is that, that they covered his, their face so as to not look at God. They cover their feet, and, the, and, and most commentators think what, what was they take their wings and cover their feet. As they do that, they're covering their body. They're, they're hiding themselves from God. So they hide their vision from God so that they might not see him. They hide themselves from him. And, and they fly around calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then the pastor made this point. He said, Now remember, these are sinless angels. They've never sinned. And yet, they find it necessary to hide their vision from the holiness of God. They find it necessary to to hide themselves from the holiness of God. They are awed by the mighty holiness of God. If a sinless being is so awed at God's holiness, how much more so should I be? And then Isaiah goes on and says... The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. The house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. 
For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is Isaiah, a prophet of God. If Isaiah, a prophet of God, is a man of unclean lips, then what hope do I have? What hope do you have? If he is a man of unclean lips, I tell you this, his hope is the same hope that we have. And that is a hope of the gracious mercy of God, the atoning grace of God that is available to us in Christ Jesus alone. For he is the one who shields us from the wrath of God, having endured that wrath himself. We see in verse 1, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward is very great. The New King James Version and the King James Version say, say, I'm your shield, your exceeding great reward, saying that God himself is the great reward. And, and really it doesn't matter how you translate it. Both are true. The fact is that, that, that Abram's reward was great specifically because God himself was that reward. Christ Jesus is the reward. He is the shield. Fear not. Why? Because I am your shield. Therefore, your reward in me is very great. That is what God is saying here. Otherwise, apart from the shield, we would be consumed by his judgment, consumed by his wrath. But Christ Jesus endured that wrath on the cross. He absorbed that wrath for us so that we would not need to. How does God address Abram's fears? First, first he, he, he tells him, so shall your offspring be. We'll get to that later. But first, he, he says, I am your shield. This idea of a shield, a defense, a deliverance. It's throughout the Bible. In Psalm 84, it says, the Lord God is a sun and a shield. God is our shield, not our good works, not our supposedly righteous efforts, not our pious living, but God himself is our shield. Let us never forget that. And Psalm 84 goes on to say, O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Notice how the fact that God is our shield is linked together with trusting in him, the shield and trusting in God linked together, much as it was earlier in our unison scripture reading. Remember when Paul talked about the armor of God, take up most of all, he said, the shield of faith. The shield of faith. How we appropriate the blessings of God is by faith, by trusting in him. As we trust in him, as we as we have faith that affects our union with Christ so that every blessing that he has earned becomes our own. We're bound to him by faith. And so his righteousness becomes our righteousness. And even this faith, we must remember, is not something that we do. It's not a work that we, we drum up from within ourselves. But faith itself is a gift from God. It is his doing, not our own. He protects us. He delivers us. 
from the righteous judgment of God because of his work, because of his labors. Isaiah tells us that we have all become unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment before God, just like filthy rags. We think, oh, I'll do this and it'll please God. I'll do that. I can, I can earn a good standing before God by doing all these wonderful things. And God says, those are just filthy rags before me. You think you, think you are, are dressing in, in the most beautiful of gowns, the most magnificent of robes, when in reality what you're dressing yourself in is a bunch of torn and tattered filthy rags. But then he comes. He comes and he clothes us in the robes of Christ's righteousness. He clothes us in that so that we might be forgiven. That we might be saved. That we might know fellowship with God. And the key is faith. But if we look at verse 2, it doesn't sound exactly like faith, at least not to me. Uh, Abram, you say, okay, faith is the key. Abram says, oh Lord, uh, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Now, he's asking questions. That doesn't sound like faith to me, but I'm, I'm comforted by the fact that he asks questions here. Because so often I want to ask questions too. So often in the midst of my faith, I have questions. I, I, I just don't understand And I think that's all right. I think within the bounds of faith, there is room for questioning. John Calvin puts it this way. He says, the Lord permits us to pour into his bosom those cares by which we are tormented and those troubles by which we are oppressed. What a blessing that is. What a blessing that is that that God doesn't just say, I told you everything will be all right, now deal with it. No, he welcomes us to bring our questions, to bring our concerns, to bring our worries, and to share them with him, to to pour them into his bosom, as Calvin says. What a blessing that is. What a blessing. And and notice here the the tone, the nature of Abram's question. He, He doesn't come to God saying, kind of from a position of lack of faith, you know, God, I know you said you were going to do this, but I just don't believe it. That's not what he says. No, what he says is, Oh Lord God, what, what will you give me? For I continue childless. In essence, he's saying, Lord, I know you made a promise to me, but I'm looking here and I, I just don't understand how this could be. The numbers, they don't add up. I can't figure this out. It just doesn't make any sense to me. I don't understand. I just don't see it. And it's all right to ask those questions. We can ask those questions when we don't understand how it is that God might be working in the midst of difficult circumstances. It's all right to say, God, I don't understand. How is it? How is it? I know your word tells me that that you work all things together for the good of those who love you, who are called according to your purpose. But but how can it be that, that losing a spouse, losing a parent, losing a child can be for my good? I don't understand that. That makes no sense to me, God. How can it be? 
think it's all right to ask those questions. And sometimes God will give you answers. And sometimes he won't. And we need to be okay with that too. For his ways are higher than our ways. His understanding is greater than ours. And he does not deign to reveal all things to us. But he does give us much by his grace. We also need to realize that God does have a sense of humor. He likes irony. We see it throughout the whole Bible. We see a picture of it here in verse 3. He says, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. He's referring to Eliezer of Damascus. We assume that this was a servant born in his household. Eliezer. It's, it's a Hebrew name. The word means God is my help. And it's interesting, isn't it? That he says that Eliezer, God is my help, will be my heir. And God says, no, no, not exactly. It's not exactly Eliezer who's going to be your heir. You're not going to find an heir in him, but you are going to find an heir because of me, because I am your help. Indeed, God is your help, Abram. And I will produce an heir. This man shall not be your heir, God says in verse 4, but your very own son will be. The New King James Version says, one, one who will come from your own body will be. Literally, literally the, the words there say, say, one who will come from your loins will be your heir. God is very clear. He says that this will not be a son who is made a son through adoption. This will be a son that I have made your son. For I am the God who opens and closes the womb. And I am the God who knits together a baby even while he is inside the womb. And I will do it, Abram. It will not be your doing. It will be mine. And he brought him outside and he said, look toward the heavens and number the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. What a, what a peculiar thing to do and what a gracious act on the part of God to take him outside and give him this sign, this visual picture of how his descendants will be. It is, a, it is a, a beautiful thing that God has done for him. He had already promised him before that he would have these offspring, that the world would be blessed through them back in chapter 12. And yet he promises them again. I, I don't know about you. I tend to not be quite so patient when I tell my children something, for instance, and then they, five minutes later, ask me the same question that I had just told them the answer to. I tend to not be very patient with them. I tend to say, I just told you. Weren't you listening? But that's not how God is. For he is a God who is patient, a God who would later reveal to Moses that he is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. What a God this is. What a God this is. He is so 
merciful, so patient, so loving. And he says to Abram, look toward the heavens. The idea here behind look is not just take a a furtive glance up to the heavens. No, the idea behind the word is, is take a long look. Soak it in. Look toward the skies. Look at all the stars on that dark night. That dark night that was much like those nights that I spent on the Edwards' family farm. Look at all those stars, Abram. Look at all those stars. Count them if you can, knowing full well there's no way he could count them. He says, so shall your offspring be. They will be uncountable. Abram looks at his circumstances and says, I continue childless. But God says, don't look to your circumstances, Abram. Look to me. Look to my word. Trust in my promise. For you only see that which is before you, but I see all things. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Shall not I, who was able to take a blank canvas of sky and by my word fling countless stars against that canvas that you might be able to look up on a dark, cool, crisp night and see them across the sky. If I could fill the sky like that, shall I not also be able to fill your family with offspring? And so now every time Abram goes out at night, every time you go out at night, we can all look up at the sky. We can see the stars and we can be reminded of the faithfulness of God, of his promise, of his goodness, of his mercy. And we can believe in his promises. Sometimes it's hard to believe in God's promises. I don't know about you. I know I have trouble at times believing them because I just look at my circumstances. It's hard. But, but God's track record is such that we should always believe in his promises because he has never failed one yet. And we look at Abram and his example. He had no children, but he had the promise of God. Far better to have the promise of God than to have good circumstances. Think of how God has used other people in the past. Abram, for instance, messed up many times along the way. Yet God used him to be the father of multitudes. David messed up along the way, and yet he is the king from whom the Messiah descended. Peter denied Christ three times, and yet he was used by God to be a foundational rock upon which the church was built. Paul chased Christians to their death and yet God changed him and made him the one by whom the word would spread throughout all the world you see God uses us not because of what we do but in spite of what we do and because that is the case he can use me and he can use you and he could use Abram And verse 6 tells us Abram believed 
the Lord, and he counted to him as righteousness. It's one of the most crucial verses in all the Bible, really. He believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Four times in the New Testament, it's quoted. It tells us that it's probably pretty important if four times the New Testament authors quoted this verse. We need to remember it. The righteousness, which is normally something we do here, is credited to him, not because of anything he had done, but because he believed. Not just a cognitive assent, but actually a trusting, a clinging to God. And the verbal form here actually suggests that it's not a one-time thing, but an ongoing thing, a a, a thing that continues, a, a repeated or continuing action. Faith was Abram's normal response to God's words. There are times where it failed, like we said before, but it was his normal posture. That's not to say it was a perfect trust. We only need to go one or two verses further, and we see that he said to him, God said to, said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know I shall possess it? He's questioning again. But here's the key. It's not necessarily a perfect trust that is required, but rather a trust in the perfect one. Let me say that again. It's not necessarily a perfect trust that is required of us, but a trust in the perfect one. So we are to trust in God, realizing that ultimately that trust itself is not even our own work, but his. We believe, we trust, we lay claim to the promises of God, undeserved by us, and yet deserved by another. Our sin sin condemns us, but Christ's righteousness frees us. That righteousness accounted to us because of faith. That righteousness that is the fruit of his labor. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have indeed labored for us. What a blessing it is, though we do not deserve it, though we have not earned it, though the only wages that we have earned are death. You have taken that upon yourself and have given us your righteousness You have become sin so that in you we might become the righteousness of God. What a blessing. May that truth grow in our hearts, directing our steps, that we might live only and always for your glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.